Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, what did we learn from day one of the testimony in the Emergency Act Inquiry in Ottawa? We'll delve into that for you. We'll also cover the two latest Abacus data polls about inflation stress and COVID-19 anxiety. Oksana Kischuk, the Director of Strategy with Abacus, is going to join us for that. And Alex Jones has been ordered to pay $965 million in damages after making false claims about the Sandy Hook massacre. That's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. In our capital, in Ottawa yesterday, uh, we got underway finally with the uh, Emergencies Act inquiry, uh, which is going to take some time, we are told. And uh, yesterday, as proceedings got underway, uh, Commissioner Paul Rouleau and his staff started the proceedings by explaining just how this inquiry is going to work before the witnesses actually begin testifying, which is going to be today, as a matter of fact. In his opening remarks, Rouleau urged everybody involved to work together to enlighten Canadians. Uncovering the truth is an important goal. When difficult events occur that impact the life, lives of Canadians, the public has a right to know what has happened. But inquiries are also forward-looking. They seek not only to understand what has occurred in the past, but also to learn from those experiences and to make recommendations for the future. Okay, so that's the groundwork as to whether or not people are going to follow those rules and those guardrails. Uh, well, time will tell, I guess. We may find out a little more about that later on today. Uh, to uh, set the scene for us, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Justin Ling. Justin is a freelance investigative journalist who's written for the Globe and Mail, The Guardian, and Vice. Uh, Justin, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today. Good morning, Bill. I got the, the sense from uh, what the Justice was saying yesterday uh, he wants this to be fair-minded. Uh, you know, we're just going to be seeking the truth. Uh, he doesn't want any of the, the snipping that usually goes on in situations like this. Uh, are these guys going to get down in the mud, or is this going to be a civil uh, atmosphere in this in this testimony? I mean, you have to imagine that it's going to be relatively civil. You know, I, I don't think anybody gains from um, getting acrimonious and, and, and slinging mud and, and, and trying to impugn the motives of, of this person, the other person. I mean, I, I think, quite honestly, the only candidate I see likely kind of throwing a wrench into the whole thing, it's probably the Council for uh, the so-called Freedom Corp and the broader so-called Freedom Convoy. Um, because, you know, they have, I think, uh, you know, the most to lose here. I mean, the, the deck is sort of stacked against them and 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 frankly rightfully so i mean you're going to have a an inquiry where the government gets to present its case as to why um, it, it viewed this as not just a threat to the economy, not just a disruption for the people of Ottawa, but potentially a national security threat. And they're, to back that up, going to present a stack of documents, um, intelligence assessments, uh, reports from police, from CSIS, from the RCMP, uh, to bolster that idea, to make the case that the, the Emergencies Act was the only tool available to them at that point. Um, the the, the, the folks who enabled the occupation are not going to have that same sort of um, stack of, 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 you know, of documentation, of, of information. So really what they're going to try to do, I think, more often than not, is, you know, really try to undermine the government's case, which, of course, is, is their right to do in this in this situation. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think the government uh, or police or CSIS or whomever benefits much from getting into, um, a, you know, a bickering match with, uh, with those who enable this occupation. 
I think we got a little sign of that yesterday, didn't we, with the opening statements, and, and especially, as you mentioned, uh, the, the legal representation for the protesters themselves that basically went through the, uh, the, the five or six talking points that would justify enacting mm -hmm. this legislation, basically saying that didn't happen, that didn't happen, that didn't happen, uh, which is a rather subjective point of view, I suppose, uh, from their standpoint, uh, and I'm sure there's going to be counterpoint on some of those things. But there was there's an awful lot of passion in Ottawa, as we know, back in February. Is that going to is that going to be carried over into this hearing? Or it, I, I think the justice has got his hands full trying to keep things organized here and keep keep on on message here. So, so you're quite right. I mean, the, the counsel for the convoy yesterday um, stood up and said, you know, you're going to hear that um, this this occupation amounted to a threat to national security. You'll see no evidence of that. Right, you're going to hear that um, you know, there there was uh, going to be a plot, uh, you know, to to remove the government or to cause an insurrection. You'll see no evidence of that. And I'm sitting there listening to this guy, thinking, I don't. I think we're actually going to see some evidence of that. I think reasonable people can disagree <laughs> about whether or not that's a fair conclusion, about whether or not they actually posed a national security threat, about whether or not they actually genuinely wanted to remove the government. But there is a mountain of evidence showing that at the very least the organizers but certainly a ton of people who came out wanted to do you know wanted to pose a national security threat and want to remove the government so um, I, I think it was quite interesting that they sort of tried to stack the deck before they got into it but I don't think it's going to prove a very effective legal strategy now in, in terms of you know the the sort of fervor that you might see in this thing in my experience when you wind up in one of these situations a lot of the people who have really high emotions, who are really charged up, tend to lose some of that excitement once they see the reality of how a public commission actually works. This thing is going to be slow. It is going to be methodical. It is going to be much more concerned in figuring out the nuances of whether or not the Emergencies Act was uh, should have been uh, deployed and how it can be better deployed in the future. Um, there is not going to be that satisfying Perry Mason moment that I think a lot of the pro-convoy types are hoping for. There's not going to be that moment that I think some of the anti-vaxxers are crossing their fingers for, where the Council for the Freedom Corp, as they call themselves, you know, cross-examines the Prime Minister and says, you know, isn't it true you have no evidence, sir? You know, I, I think they're expecting, I think they're hoping for some bombastic courtroom drama, and it's just not going to work that way. Frankly, I think a lot of them are going to tune out. I think they'll tune in for some of the big days, but I don't think it's going to be able to uh, maintain the attention of the folks who are most invested in, in the outcome. And, and I think uh, Mr. Rula, Justice Rula, actually set the, the, that standard, didn't he, yesterday, Justin, with his opening comments, mm -hmm. saying this is not a trial. Uh, mm -hmm. and so don't expect, as you say, one of those gotcha moments. And this is going to take months. <laughs> I mean, even if yeah. you want to tune in and listen to this every day, I, I think the justice is probably going to get bored from time to time, too, because there's going to be a lot of stuff here that might be deemed irrelevant. But, but at the same time, these are all people with standing, and they're going to want to have their time. That's right, and you're seeing a long, you know, there was a long litany of interveners, um, those withstanding, giving their opening statements yesterday, um, including some that might seem completely unconnected, um, like the uh, the Association of, of, of BC Indigenous Chiefs um, got standing in this case for very good reason, you know, basically saying yesterday, we don't want to be in a country where this act can get invoked left, right, and center, and we're concerned that it could be used in even more tenuous circumstances like a, a, a pipeline blockade. Um, so you're going to see a lot of different um, agendas at play, and it will, I think, kind of lengthen the process significantly. Uh, 
Um, and I, I, you know, again, I, I think at the end of the day, if anyone's hoping for that slam dunk moment on either side, right? On a slam dunk moment that finally exposes, um, you know, the, the Freedom Convoy as a whole bunch of seditious, you know, insurrectionists. You're not going to see that, I don't think. I, and, and on the flip side, I don't think you're going to see that moment where the Prime Minister invoked the actors because he hates these people so much. You, what we're going to see is very, you know, uh, based in law, methodical, uh, thoughtful, slow process that will give us the tools necessary to figure out how to use this act in the future. And by the way, great because we do want to live in a country where the government should be able to invoke emergency powers if there is a genuine emergency but we've never really known up until now what actually constitutes an emergency um, how should those powers be used you know what sort of guardrails additional guardrails do we need and that's what this inquiry this commission is going to tell us hopefully so that's actually a really positive thing if you put away all of the drama and and all of the sort of acrimony you know, the actual mission of this thing is going to be very important some of the stuff even yesterday in the opening remarks I, I found a little quizzical, including the OPP, by the way, who, uh, whose official stand on this was uh, this, this legislation, the enactment of the Emergencies Act, was not needed at all. Uh, but they did say, uh, the lawyers anyway for the OPP did say, that uh, we did request that we, we wanted the powers to be able to do all these things, like freeze back, but we didn't want them, didn't want them to enact the, the legislation. Uh, I, I, now, I'm not a lawyer, but you can't have one without the other, can you? Oh, I, I mean, it's totally quixotic, right? I mean, the OPP was never really a lead agency in this from the get-go. They were a partner. I think they uh, fundamentally took a more hands-off approach. Uh, I mean, you know, they're more responsive to provincial legislation than to federal. Frankly, their opinion on this doesn't carry a ton of weight. I'm much more interested in hearing from the Ottawa Police Service and the RCMP um, because they actually do want to get a sense of what powers they were unable to use because I think what we're going to find... Um, and this actually might bolster the case of people who don't think the Emergencies Act was necessary, I think you're going to hear from the Ottawa police that it's not that they didn't have the authority or the power, it's they didn't have the resources or the will or the know-how to enact them. And I think that's where a lot of this is going to come down to, you know, and there's also going to be, I think, many points along this timeline, we're going to learn that the Ottawa Police Service should have been more proactive, should have had better intelligence, should have been, you know, had a little more foresight, should have taken uh, better steps, and didn't. Right, and I think that's really how we baked ourselves into this situation. But I'm also curious to hear from the RCMP. You know, why didn't they take a more proactive leadership role from the very beginning? It really did look like a while that we were playing jurisdictional hot potato with various, um, you know, levels of government and very various police sources, kind of passing off responsibility for who was really in charge. And I think if you're curious about the kind of policing side of things, I think a lot of those documents, a lot of that testimony, will be rather enlightening um, and and it could speak to the fact that you maybe and I'm just raising this as a possibility the government invoked the Emergencies Act to just sort of clear the deck of all of this bureaucratic squabbling just to say we're in charge we're doing this here's what's happening uh, and, and again I, I can see some validity in that as well because I mean the reality here is it's it's one thing for the OPP and and you know, I don't know how the RCMP are going to respond to this at this point uh, to say that this was unnecessary, but nothing got done until this was enacted. Mm -hmm. uh, they sat there and they watched. As a matter of fact, there are some accusations, of course, that, that some officers might have been complicit with some of the, the people that were protesting there. So there's a, there's a lot going on here that, that has to be sorted out. And and the, the reality here is they sat there for weeks and weeks. And I, I got the same impression with the, with, well, the then chief slowly, 
they figured, okay, this is going to be really inconvenient. They're going to come here and all going to be on Parliament Hill, but they, they always go home on Sunday. So that'll be it. It's, it's going to be a 24-hour thing. And it wasn't. And that, they weren't prepared for that. Uh, and I guess, you know, once you have egg on your face, you have to first of all admit you have egg on your face before you can yeah. do anything about it. And they never really did, did they, Justin? No, and, and and listen, you know, I've obtained intelligence assessments that were given to the Ottawa Police Service before the convoy arrived that said these people are going to stay longer than a weekend, or at least it's very possible they're going to stay longer than a weekend. So there's been a question I've always had is, you know, why did the Ottawa Police Service decide to ignore a CSIS briefing that warned them about this possibility? Why did they stick to the line that they only thought they were going to stay a weekend? You know, did they trust the spokesperson for the convoy more than they trusted CSIS? Um, I think there's a lot of, 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 you know, scrutiny to be applied here to the Ottawa Police Service. Um, about why they didn't do take various steps all along the way, um, but again, you know, I think a lot of it also falls to the the federal and provincial governments. I mean, the, the provincial government um, you know, tried to stay very hands off, invoked some emergency measures, um, you know, early on um, that did some good, but then largely stepped back. Uh, the federal government, uh, I don't know that they took enough steps before the Emergencies Act was invoked. And frankly, I think once the Emergencies Act was invoked and they drew up the orders around it, they were written in such a way that that did allow for potential abuses of Canadian civil liberties. Um, so I think there is a lot of scrutiny to go kind of all around. And I, you know, this will be the interesting nitty gritty of this. Um, and I think you're getting a sense of, of you know, where this, co this commission is actually going. It's not going to be relitigating whether or not the convoy and the occupation was good, um, because I think it has to start from the starting point that no, it wasn't. Um, but, you know, and, and this is the where a lot of this is going to clash, right? You're going to hear from the city and from police and the province, the federal government, and the, the, the people who lived in the community saying this was a genuine crisis. This was an emergency. We were losing massive amounts of money in, in by uh, cross-border trade. We were facing threats like in Coots, Alberta, or alleged threats in Coots, Alberta. Um, you know, we were concerned about poten the potential for violence or for weapons. We were seeing the um, harassment of people on the street. And then I think when you kind of put that next to the convoy position, which is this was a fun-loving, happy-go-lucky, you know, legitimate expression of our freedom, or, you know, of our legitimate freedom of speech. I think you're going to see that you know, just how kind of tenuous that case actually is. Well, and especially uh, first up today, I guess, is going to, are going to be some citizens groups from Ottawa that were impacted, and that should be uh, rather emotional. But and and to their point, I know we're just about out of time here, but they, 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 this was just a protest. Uh, I still remember the missive that one of the leaders, whose name escapes me right now, there were two or three of them, but this this was issued. This was a press release that basically said, we're not leaving until the governor general fires the prime minister and we take over the government with the governor general. Yeah. Uh, that That's going beyond a protest, and that's that's moving into that area of, of a threat to, to, to sovereignty, isn't it? Well, that's right. I mean, you know, the, the core document that they all rallied around in the early days, um, this memorandum of understanding uh, purported to give them the legal authority to remove the government. You heard uh, repeatedly from core organizers that they did not want to leave until the government was gone. You actually heard from the spokesperson for the movement say, even if they, you know, we, we want to start by requesting they come negotiate with us, but even when they negotiate with us, that won't be enough. We're not going to stop until all of this is done, until we're dictating policy at the federal level. And, and then he basically said, we might even go further than that. Who's to say? Right? You know, this was not good faith negotiation. You had photos and, and posters and people on stage saying it was time to, to arrest, try for treason, and maybe even hang the prime minister. And by the way, maybe all of the, the ministers of health and the premiers across the country as well. You know, this was not a legitimate good faith um, you know, protest movement. This was a 
by and large, a lawless, you know, decentralized, loose-knit group of people, including some real yahoos. Well, we'll uh, see how it starts today with the testimony. Justin, always a pleasure. I look forward to you reporting on this, too, over the next few days. But thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Thanks for having me. Justin Ling, a freelance investigative journalist, of course, uh, who's going to be covering and certainly writing about what's going to be happening during this inquiry. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. My commentary at uh, 829 this morning on CHML, I was talking about, uh, well, the press conference Dr. Kieran Moorhead yesterday. He, of course, is Ontario's chief medical officer and basically saying, uh, look out because <laughs> COVID could be coming back. The cases are already up. Case numbers are already up. Uh, but vaccination rates are way down. As a matter of fact, uh, he went on to say, uh, with the upcoming flu season and a resurgence of other respiratory viruses, this could be a very complicated winter uh, for the province. And uh, he is saying that if the hospital system is strained, uh, he's going to first recommend masking once again in settings such as uh, post-secondary educations, malls, public transit, things of this nature. Uh, and he was pretty adamant about that. Here's uh, some of the, what the doctor had to say. We're seeing a slow and progressive rise in the number of COVID cases. Uh, the percentage of tests that are positive is going up this week. The number of people in hospital and in our intensive care units is also going up in Ontario. And I get an explanation for that because you figure, why is this happening? Didn't we learn from the last two and a half years? Uh, our good friends at Abacus Data have been doing some research to find out just how we're feeling about what's going on. Uh, and they touched on inflation and what's going on with the economy, certainly. But they also did one about exactly what the, the good doctor was just talking about here, about uh, anxiety, about COVID, and about vaccine hesitancy. And, and I, I want to cover both of these with our next guest, Oksana Kischak, who is the Director of Strategy and Insights with Abacus Data. Uh, Oksana, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. You again. Let me I, I'll jump in on the, the COVID thing, what Dr. Moore was saying yesterday uh, about being concerned, very concerned uh, about the number of new cases that are going on and the low vac uh, vaccine rates that are going on, which is exactly what you guys were talking about. One of the surveys you guys did with Abacus talked about anxiety levels with people about COVID and about uh, vaccine hesitancy. What did you find? Yeah, so while the, the doctor is, is sort of telling us that we should be worried about COVID, our worries and sort of fears about COVID have are, are at an all-time low, and they have been for quite some time since this summer. Only 14% of Canadians say that they're extremely or worried a lot about COVID. Um, and, and just to give you perspective, at the beginning of the pandemic, this sort of very high measure of worry was at 40%, so quite a decrease since, since that time. Have, have we? Have, are we tired of it? I mean, what what are they telling you? I mean, or is it just they fit their figure the worst is over? Uh, I think it's a, a fact. A number of factors. I think it's been going on for for some time. I think um, folks who uh, were, were going to get the vaccine have gone out and, and done so. And I think that there's also a, a great number of folks who've experienced COVID themselves, and their symptoms haven't been maybe as bad as they were expecting. So all of those things combined, I think we're seeing sort of a, a disinterest in being worried about this issue in particular. Exactly. I think that's a great characterization looking at some of the numbers that you guys were able to gather, especially about vaccine hesitancy. Now, when that phrase was used a year and a half, two years ago, I remember some of the, the, the data that you were collecting at that time. And a lot of the hesitancy there was people say, well, I don't know if the vaccine is going to work. I, I, I don't like vaccines. There's a number of different reasons. But this one, it seems to be as if what I'm hearing, and I think what the, your data indicates here is the vaccine hesitancies a lot of people just saying i don't think i need it I, I, you know I, I think the worst is over but i probably don't need another vaccination as as dr moore talked about i mean the vaccination rate among people i think it's over 60 is only 16 percent which kind of indicates that a lot of people are thinking this is unnecessary at this stage 
Yeah, I think people were sort of more interested in getting those first couple of doses. And I think mm-hmm. sort of as time goes on and, and you've had some immunity with the vaccine, maybe you've had COVID already, um, your likelihood of continuing to take doses is pretty low. And I think um, as maybe and maybe we do need the vaccines. And, and unfortunately, it's not uh, great that people are doing that. But if we think of kind of the flu shot uptake and if this is sort of turning into that in a lot of people's minds, um, not a lot of people go out and got their flu shot prior to, to COVID. So I think that this is sort of turning into another one of those situations. And it's going to be very hard to convince people um, sort of about the trade off for actually going in and getting their vaccine. Well, especially, as he says, if the numbers keep rising, we have to go back to wearing masks indoors and things of that nature. Uh, that's uh, It's not going to be a popular move. And, and uh, just if you're just joining our conversation, uh, they're not doing it. Uh, they're not planning on doing it. But Dr. Moore did say if the numbers keep going up uh, and the pressures on the healthcare system, uh, they may be forced to do uh, that once again, the masking at least, and who knows where that's going to lead after that. Uh, and that's... That, that, and, and by the way, as I mentioned in my commentary, uh, the the crisis in the hospitals is already starting. Uh, I know in Hamilton, for instance, uh, you know Hamilton Health Sciences uh, is actually using two or three floors of a, a local hotel uh, to house some of their patients. Now that used to be just COVID patients, and it's just general patients. Well, but that just means that you know they're they're overpopulated in the hospitals right now. So this is not a good time to just let this thing run rampant again. But anyway. Uh, it, it was so timely because of what Dr. Moore said, and then you released this data, uh, which pretty much reflects exactly what he was saying, that, that, that we're just kind of putting this in our rearview mirror, and I think he's saying not yet, not to go. Something we can't put in our rearview mirror uh, is something else that you talked to uh, Canadians about, uh, Oksana, and that's uh, the economy and, and inflation and the impact that it's having. Uh, this is not the first time you've you've done some polling about this with Canadians. Uh, do a comparative for me about what you found out in July and what they're talking about now. Yeah, so we surveyed folks back in July to see uh, whether or not they were sort of picking up on the the big word inflation that we are hearing a lot in the news and what that really means for Canadians and our pocketbooks. And then we did the same thing uh, recently to see what's changed. There's been sort of a bit of chatter about uh recession, if it'll happen, when it'll happen, all that. And what we see is that um, a lot of people are kind of doing that same dance that we see a lot in the media. So about half of, of folks say that um, current economic conditions are um, could be better, but are not really too difficult for them. Same as was in July and sort of same thing when we talk about inflation specifically. So um, does inflation impact your life? About um, half of us say it's not really a challenge um, and half-ish say that it, it's causing difficult difficulty for them having to make difficult choices. So we're kind of split a little bit half and half about whether or not it's, it's really impacting us and seems to be consistent from July. I think a lot of folks are kind of in that waiting period. Um, back in July, prices had already increased quite a bit. So um, from July to October, uh, maybe people are getting comfortable with with all of these sort of roller coasters, another roller coaster we're all on, um, but, but interesting numbers nonetheless. Uh, women seem to be more impacted by this than men, according to your data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, women and folks uh, with lower incomes, which perhaps is the more expected category of those two, um, are a lot more uh, more likely to say that uh, inflation has been causing them to make difficult choices in their life, um, more so than men. Uh, I, I love the categories. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, you don't really notice inflation. Uh, you notice it, but it's not really a challenge. That's a very Canadian answer, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah we've got it. But gee, well, you know, yeah. we'll goodbye. And then, you know, yeah. the difficult choices, which I find interesting, too. But the majority mm-hmm. of us seem to be, yeah, this sucks, but, you know, we're, we're dealing with it. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And so I think that that's a, an important measure to watch because it's it's sort of that neutral category. But nonetheless, these numbers also, if you look at them from another angle, show that uh, like nearly all of us are saying that they are noticing inflation and noticing what it could mean for their lives, which is sort of a little bit um, maybe foreshadowing for what will come in the coming months. And, and I think we understand the magnitude of the problem, too, because I know one of the questions you asked is, well, how do you think Canada is faring uh, compared to, to other countries. And 25% of us think that, you know, we're worse off than some of the others. But the, the majority of, of the people that you polled simply said, no, this is a global problem. Yeah, it's bad for us, mm -hmm. but other people are suffering too. They, they seem to get it. Yeah, yeah, that's right on par with July. So just uh, over 50% say that um, in Canada, inflation is about the same as it is around the world. So recognizing that we're really in that global economy moment um, and it's it's no better if you move somewhere else. <laughs> Uh, and we just almost seem resigned. As you say, the numbers are pretty similar to what we saw in the summertime with the data that you got there. Uh, mm -hmm. I guess we're just assuming, look at this is with us. We're going to have to live with it. Uh, you know, there's not going to be any quick solution to this. Uh, but uh, I, I, it's I, because they're asking again, you know, uh, uh, what impact uh, have the choices made by the federal government had on inflation? Uh, it's 50 50. Uh, it's not too far away from where it was in, in back in the summertime in July. That, mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, whatever the government's doing, it's not really having much of an impact at all. Yeah, yeah. So 50% say the government's made inflation worse and, and just under 50% say they've had no real effect on inflation. Very small numbers say that they've made things better. Um, so I think that there's kind of that divide as well about whether or not um, the government's doing anything, whether or not it's the global economy doing anything and whether or not it's going to turn into anything else as well. Well, it's fascinating to see uh, the comparator between summer and now. Uh, you know, because we've seen, well, inflation numbers go down a little bit anyway, 8.1, and I think it's down around 7.4 or something like that. And we're hoping that maybe that might make people feel a little more optimistic. But I think we're just figuring out, oh, just keep your head down and keep going forward and we'll see what we can do about this. But And, and you've got more data. I know you're going to continue to track this, aren't you, over the months ahead? Yeah, definitely, especially as we sort of look for those inflation numbers and unemployment numbers as they come out to see um, sort of how those predictors work. And then also the predictors of people's sort of behavior and perceptions. If people are starting to panic, um, that can be something that's really bad for the economy as well. Absolutely. Aksana, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for the great work you guys are doing at Abacus, and uh, we'll stay in touch with you, okay? Yeah, thanks so much. You betcha. Oksana Kischak, the Director of Strategy and Insights with Abacus Data. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. With all the other court action that's going on vis-a-vis uh, -vis Trump and Mar-a-Lago and, and a bunch of other things that are going on, uh, this one may have slipped by you, but it was a big story and uh, caused a lot of headlines. Uh, and it's to do with a, uh, a lawsuit. Alex Jones, uh, the conspiracy theorist uh, down in the States, has been ordered to pay $965 million in damages after falsely claiming that the 2012 Sandy Hook school shooting was a hoax. And he, this not just once, this was a number of times that, that he made these pleas, and uh, he has a lot of followers. Uh, well, there's, there's radio shows on social media, whatever the case might be. So it had an impact, and some of the victim statements I thought were fascinating about this. That's a big number. Uh, let's talk about the implications, and, and actually, if this is the big number that's actually going to get paid out, uh, to get some clarity on this, so pleased to welcome back to the program Andrew Fugelli, who is the uh, lecturer of uh, Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. Andrew, pleasure to have you back on. I hope you're doing well these days. Doing well. Thanks uh, for having me again, Bill. I guess maybe first point I want to make here is, is when we see stories like this and, and a big number, uh, almost a billion dollars, 
And by the way, there are other uh, uh, judgments pending on this guy too, so that, that number could grow. There's a big difference between how these are adjudicated in the States and in Canada, isn't there? Uh, th- there is. Uh, there's a lot of similarities as well, but there are some differences. And, and uh, in terms of this number, um, I, I think there's a lot of focus on how big it is. I, I think, frankly speaking, it's going to be more symbolic than actual. Um, he, he has the outstanding, I think, $49.3 million judgment. He's got another case coming. Um, and uh, I would be shocked if anything close to this amount is actually paid out. And, of course, he's going to appeal and try to get the judgment reduced on appeal. Uh, but but I think for the families and, and the plaintiffs involved, there, there was also an FBI agent um, who was hurt by these lies, um, who was a plaintiff as well. I, I think just the number itself is more a symbol uh, in their view than anything they expect to actually get paid. And doesn't that happen more often than not when you see big numbers like this? I mean, I can remember reading just anecdotally uh, some of the large numbers uh, when when the tobacco companies were probably found, eventually found liable uh, from a number of people that had, had, well, some families had died, cancer members and I think of this nature. And and they they were talking, again, huge, huge numbers there. But that's not necessarily the payout, is it? No, uh, the tobacco companies, uh, frankly, have a much better record of paying out because they have that kind of cash on hand. Somebody like Mr. Jones um, likely doesn't have that money anymore on hand, or if he does, he's taken steps to shield it from claim. And I know he's already uh, declared bankruptcy, so he's going to do everything in his power to uh, not pay this out. Um, and to try to show that he doesn't have it anymore. Um, and I'm, I'm, I would be shocked if he had a billion dollars lying around to pay it. Uh, but the upshot of it is, is that these are judgments that exist until they're paid off. It'll exist over his head until he dies. Um, and what that means, it's going to be very difficult for him to do business. Um, it, it acts as a debt. So if he wants to go to any creditors to try to borrow money, that's going to be very difficult for him to do because he's got this massive debt overhead, uh, which would make a creditor believe that they're not going to get paid out. Further, if he wants to start doing business again, um, all of the revenue or a lot of the revenue from any business that he uh, undertakes is going to be garnished heavily. So uh, while the family's never going to see anything close to this amount of money, I would bet, um, there's going to be a very real cost to him going forward. Is, is is insurance involved in this at all? Are there insurance payouts for this? I mean, can you can he take out a policy against these sorts of things, like, given what he does for a living? I don't think so. I, I don't know that his, his show could have been insured for slander. Um, I've never heard of an insurance policy uh, like that where, it, where, where for something that you um, explicitly say that you know to be a lie, uh, which is what the finding is by the jury here, that insurance would cover that in the same way that they would cover negligence-based claims or accidents. And even if there was an insurance policy for, for this sort of thing, for, for it to cover a billion dollars um, or anything close to that, it, it would be impossible. I, I can't imagine there's an insurance company that exists or ever existed that would ever um, uh, insure someone like Alex Jones for anything close to that amount of money. Let me take a step back, I guess, maybe a little bit on process, if I could, Andrew, uh, about a situation like this. Uh, this this guy's a conspiracy theorist. But that's he fits the definition beautifully, of course. Uh, he's the the founder of a, a thing called Infowars, which is a web page which is just full of conspiracy theories about a number of different things. 
Uh, he's not the only one, as we know, uh, who's doing this sort of thing and who's spreading false information about this on social media, on his radio show, whatever the case may be. There are others. But for it to get to this stage, uh, what kind of threshold does he have to, I was going to say, what does he have to meet, but I guess to, to exceed, uh, where all of a sudden this sort of legal action ensues? Uh, so there's a couple parts to that. First off, you have to show that what, what we call a tort happened, which is which is a tort is, is something that someone has done or a negligence that they've failed in where uh, damages have, have, have come to somebody. So here the tort would be the slander. Um, and and uh, what he has done is pushed a conspiracy theory um, about the Sandy Hook massacre that has caused damage to people. And, and, and that was the evidence that you heard that directly as a result of his lie, and him knowing that what he was doing, what he was saying was a lie, which is what the jury found, that damage caused because some of his followers took to beginning campaigns of harassment against the families um, of the murdered children. And, and and also an FBI agent who who was one of the first was was a responder at the scene uh, and also faced that harassment. So the jury found the link between Jones's lie and the damage that the families uh, uh, faced as a result of that lie. Uh, and some of those stories, as you mentioned, were just heartbreaking, actually. Uh, one dad, uh, Mark Barden, uh, recounted that uh, people were desecrating his son Daniel's grave. His son Daniel is one of the people that was murdered uh, at Sandy Hook, uh, urinating on the grave, threatening to dig it up. Uh, others that have had to move three or four times because of threats and, and protests in front of their houses and things of this nature. And, and again, you know, I guess when you look at Jones' reaction to this, he basically said, well, I'm not responsible for the actions of, of my followers. Uh, is he, though? Does this settlement and does this judgment indicate that, yeah, you are? Well, the jury sure found that it was. And, and, and as a matter of logic, um, uh, that makes a lot of sense. You know, Jones is a public figure. He knows that. He's got a channel uh, uh, that uh, has millions of subscribers. He's well aware of that. Uh, and he knows uh, that those followers take a lot of what he says seriously. And so when he puts out that, not only uh, was this a hoax, but it's a hoax for a purpose, which as I understand it, his uh, view or or. Uh, what he set out there to get money from his followers was uh, that this was a hoax done so that uh, there could be some massive regime of gun control uh, in the United States and that this was a step towards the government taking everyone's guns, uh, which he knows would inflame his followers. And a lot of his followers, um, not all of them, but a fair number of them are people with serious mental health issues who would fall prey to this sort of conspiracy theory um, and then would try to take action um, and take matters into their own hands. So uh, logically, that's exactly what the jury said, that that uh, he was responsible for this because he had the audience, he knew he had the audience, uh, and, and he knew what his audience, uh, what sorts of things there would be the risk of them doing as a result of him saying this. Can you prove, uh, because initially, because this has been going on for quite some time, of course, uh, Sandy Hook, the massacre, of course, uh, occurred a long time ago, 2012, I guess it was. But he he maintained for the longest time that, that this is how he, he felt, that he was being sincere about this. Uh, he's recanted, obviously, and I, I don't know 
in this particular case, Andrew, if, if you know, the, the change of heart was simply because he thought he was going to lose this thing or if he actually has, you know, changed his mind or if he ever believed it in the first place. Does it matter if you believe it? The fact that you say it means it's it's caused the damage? Um, so that there can be a truth defense with respect to slander. Um, the, the problem for Jones in this case is even if he claims that I actually believed this at the time, um, there was a raft of evidence that's been put forward um, to show that that really likely wasn't the case. Um, and, and, and that came uh, in the form of basically the rest of his website. Alex Jones is a grifter. Uh, that's what he does. And, and what he does is he puts out conspiracy theories so that he can make money off of it. And uh, Bill, you've probably seen it. He's done things like saying um, the government is putting chemicals in the water to turn frogs gay and then to turn people gay. Well, then the next segment is uh, that he's selling a water filtration system. And, and, and you've got a host of things like that on his site. And that's powerful evidence for a jury because what it shows is he doesn't think that it's real or he doesn't care that it's real. And what it's really all about for him is accruing followers and gaining money. So it, it's not it, it, the belief. If you're going to try to run that as a defense, first off, um, you have to try to run a truth defense here. And there's no way you could run that because this massacre actually happened. But the second thing is, even if, if you try to. To, to convince a jury that he actually believed this at the time. There's a raft of evidence showing that, you know, I, I don't know that he really believes anything other than what he knows will make him money. And again, as you say, you look at the body of work that he's doing right now, and it's like he scams people. Yeah, you know, they're putting stuff in the water, but I have the solution for you. Kind of, you know, send me whatever it is, money, and I'll fix this for you so you, you're not going to be tainted by this. I, I know the old P.T. Barnum thing of what a sucker being born every minute comes along. But th th this is, a, you know, taking it to the next level. These aren't just people that are getting scammed. Uh, these are people that take action into their own hands. D does this send a message to some of the others who are doing the same sort of thing now? Uh, or, uh, and, and again, if, if somebody feels as if, uh, oh God, pick one out of the air. There's a bunch of them. I mean, Joe Rogan's been accused of these things. A number of other commentators that have uh, social media platforms. Uh, or radio shows, for that matter, are doing these sorts of things. But uh, the onus is to prove that there has been damage done, as you say, to, to deal with the tort. Uh, the damage is done, and uh, and whether or not it was malicious in situations like that. Is that a high bar? Well, it's, it's, it's a bar that has several parts to it. First, you have to show that the individual committed the slander. Um, and, and so there's a cause of action here. There's a tort that's taken place. Uh, and then you have to show that damages not only happened, but happened, are linked to, happened as a result of that tort, to put it as, as sort of simply as we can. Um, so it, it is a high bar. And the other thing about the civil realm is, um, you know, it's a costly place to be. Um, you know, the Sandy Hook families, the plaintiffs in this case, had to pay, I'm sure, a fair amount of money for this generally symbolic victory. And they may have gotten donations and, and whatnot. 
But so there, there's a legal bar, but there's also like a realistic hurdle here. Of it's tough to bring to go through a civil court system that takes years, uh, at where before you can get to trial, where you have to burn through a ton of legal fees, where you have a system that's generally set up to try to push resolutions between the parties before you finally get to trial. So there's there's legal hurdles, but there's also actual financial hurdles to people trying to bring um, somebody like Alex Jones into court to answer for this. And, and the other part of it, too, Bill, is Alex Jones is a clear, physical human being who's a public figure. He's there. He's not hiding. Um, and, and so he can be served with uh, court documents and, and the process can start because we know who he is. There are conspiracy theorists now who we don't know who they are. And while it's possible to sue an online person, when it comes to actually collecting damages against them, they may well remain anonymous. You know, the QAnon um, uh, conspiracy theory uh, uh, raft uh, uh, has led to real human damages. Somebody shot up a pizza parlor in New York because they believed that that children were being chained in the basement there. Um, but we don't know who Q is. And and so he can't be served and his physical body can't be brought into court. So that's yet another hurdle for some of these conspiracy theory um, uh, or some of these conspiracy theorists in terms of actually getting them into court. In in that circumstance, though, can can the that proceeding go on in absentia or, or do, do they actually have to have a, a physical person there to to hang this on? So my understanding is uh, you can actually bring a proceeding against an individual um, to have that uh, uh, to have the finding brought against them. Um, but in terms of actually finding out who they are, um, uh, you can't bring the damages. You can't bring the court judgment home to roost on anybody um, if you don't know who they are. Now, as you mentioned, uh, Andrew, uh, you know, Jones has basically said, I don't have the money. So something nobody's now he can't say nobody's going to get anything. I mean, is how how fervent is the attempt to try to draw money out of them? Even if he doesn't have the, this money, the nine hundred sixty five million dollars, he has something. He has assets. Uh, how far do they go to try to, to extract some of that? The, they'll take just about all of it. Um, they'll take as much of it as they possibly can. Um, I, I think, generally speaking, they're allowed, uh, uh, defendants uh, are allowed to have enough to live off of, but uh, the judgment follows them around forever. Um, you know, you, you saw that with the civil judgment for uh, against O.J. Simpson in the United mm -hmm. States after uh, uh, the Brown and Goldman families brought a civil suit against them. Uh, you know, he, he'll never have large amounts of money ever again for as long as he lives. Um, and there will be consistent ongoing attempts to take whatever he does get. So it, it, it should be a very comprehensive and forever lasting court attempts to, to, to try to take what he has. But you mentioned you get yourself a fancy accountant and you can you can hide money here, there, and everywhere. Uh, did they look under all these rocks? And because uh, this sounds like this is going to carry on in the courts for some time. Yeah, they they can, they, they can try to see whether um, the money that has been hidden or has been transferred to others or property that gets transferred to others. They can uh, try to get around those transfers. Um, there, are, there are legal tests and, and considerations in terms of um, 
finding that in this case the transfer shouldn't hold and that that property should still be considered his for the purposes of satisfying the judgment they're just more hurdles that are put up um and, and that's why i say that uh, at the end of the day that this is going to be a long road for these families to get anything and i would be shocked if that's what they were actually in this for um, my my clear sense is they were in this for two reasons. Number one, for the symbolic strike against Jones and conspiracy theorists of his like, uh, and, and second, to stop him, to try to stop him from being able to do business um, uh, in the future. Well, uh, as you say, they're going to appeal this, so this is not over by any stretch of the imagination. It's always great to get your perspective and add some clarity to this, Andrew. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. Talk soon. You too. Take care. Andrew Fugielli, a lecturer with the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.